And we're live. Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. Welcome to Debut Spotlight. I'm the author of the forthcoming novel, Atomic Anna. And today my guest is Destiny Birdsong. She is the unbelievable author of this amazing book, Nobody's Magic. It just came out yesterday. It is so good. You need to run and get a copy now. Before we start talking to Destiny, and I have so many questions, I have to confess that I'm worried about fitting this all into 30 minutes, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> but before we jump in, I'm just going to read her bio and introduce you uh, to her, to those of you who haven't heard of her. Destiny O. Birdsong's writing has appeared in the Paris Review Daily, African American Review, and Catapult, among other publications. She's received the Academy of American Poets Prize and the Richard G. Peterson Poetry Prize. Her critically acclaimed debut collection of poems, that's right, she's an amazing poem, poet, was long listed for the 2021 Penn Volcker Award. She also has her MFA and PhD from Vanderbilt. Destiny, this saw, this nobody's magic, this book is just amazing. Please tell us, tell our listeners, what is this about? Um, so it is a triptych novel. So it's a novel that in, in told in three parts about three women, three black women with albinism who live in my hometown or have connections to my hometown, which is Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I think if I had to say something sort of overarching about all three of the stories, like all three of the women are really sort of at critical moments in their lives where they're having to choose what they want the rest of their lives to look like, you know, and sometimes that's in the wake of loss and in, in the wake of some kind of disappointment or in the wake of some 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 new revelation. And so each of the triptychs is really just about those journeys. Like, you know, they're figuring out, you know, how do I want to live? Who do I want to live with? Who do I want to be? So. Three strong, amazing women. They just pulled me in from the very beginning. And I read that you actually started with Agnes, and yet mm -hmm. she's the third in the story, right? You start off mm -hmm. with Suzette. Um, how did you get from Agnes? Like, how did that work, the evolution of these three stories? Mm -hmm. Well, um, Agnes last, because I, I think that out of the three, she is, I think, the... Um, easiest character to hate, <laughs> you know, Agnes is a lot. Um, and so I think I, she comes last in part because I wanted to sort of ease readers into into um, into her story at least. So um, I started with Agnes, it really just started as like an idea for a short story. Um, and I, I, I was like Agnes, I was, you know, away from home doing work that um, was very taxing and stressful. And I just thought, you know, I just had this idea, like, I wonder what would happen if like, you know, someone in this space sort of just leaned into their basest impulses. <laughs> and Agnes was born. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, yeah. So I have to tell you, I was just drawn in from page one to Suzette. And I know she comes first and like, maybe that's obvious, but I just, mm -hmm. and then when I read that you had started with Agnes, I was like, really? But Suzette, <laughs> I just felt like, but um, I just want to give the listeners an example of your voice because the strength of your writing, of course, is the stories behind these women, but the voice mm -hmm. is unbelievable. And it's where you truly shine as a poet. I mean, your, your control of language, the way you shape it into these women is just, it blew me away. I like, I can't even say that enough. So I just want to read the first sentence from each of these three stories for the listeners so they get a sense of how different the voices are. And I want to tell everybody, this is so hard to do. 
as a writer to have these three distinct voices. Oh my God, this is impressive. So you start off with, I didn't really kick it that much before Donnie because I felt like I had everything I needed right where I was. I still live at home and my daddy owns Elkin Custom Auto, so we do pretty good. It's like, wow, you know your character right from those first words. And then the second one starts off, the idea to get head from some rando was mommy's. Shortly after we got high off of one of her other ideas, we'd infused chocolate chip cookie dough while binge watching Atlanta. Oh my God, right? You know you're in a whole other world right there. And then we move on to Agnes and you start off and you wrote, Agnes Cherie Kirkendall always panicked a little when she wrote her name in perfect capital letters in blocks at the top of a scantron. The extra K always threatened to keep it from fitting in the same way it had two decades before at her high school in Louisiana, the first place where someone made a connection between her name and her skin. Wow. So can you please, I'm like dying to ask you this, like how did you master these three totally separate voices? Teach me, please. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the, the, the truth is just, you know, being a black person who often has to code switch, you know, like, like I have a, a voice, you know, I have language that I use in spaces where I feel really safe with my friends and my family and people I love. And then I have other, there's sort of other range that there's a spectrum of voices, right? There's the, you know, there's the way I talk to students when I'm teaching a class. There's the way I speak to people in job interviews. There's the way I speak to people stranger who are strangers over the phone. And then there's the way I speak to people who I kind of know, but like not, you know, like, like, like what kind of cool, but I don't know you like that. Um, and so I think it really was sort of tapping into all three of those. Um, for Suzette, especially though, I wanted her because I think Suzette, Suzette is such an amazing storyteller. Um, I wanted her to sound like the people who told stories to me when I was a kid. So she sounds like, you know, she sounds like me and my family at home. Um, and I think that one for me was the hardest to, um, to, 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 put on the page because there's a rhythm that that I that you, you just kind of hear in the language. And so I was always kind of checking in with that. Um, yeah, but. But that yeah. was the hardest because I felt like that one just, I mean, it read like, it read like I was sitting next to her, just listening to her talking to Drina and, you know, her mom and dad. And Yeah, that takes work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. And yeah. you, yeah. I can see you put in the hours and hours and hours. Really, it paid off. Um, so I want to talk to you about the uh, title itself, right? Nobody's mm -hmm. Magic. So there's a lot of there are a lot of references to magic in there and voodoo with Suzette and stuff. So could you please talk about magic? Why magic? <laughs> yeah. People with albinism, and particularly Black people with albinism, have a complicated relationship with magic, right? Um, I've talked about this before, but you know, one of those complexities is sort of the layer the layers of like Black girl magic, right? I think Black girl magic is great sometimes it gets conflated with melanin magic and that's where I get uncomfortable because that excludes me. Um, um, in another sense, and you get some of this in Suzette's story, like depending on where you are in the world, like ha having albinism could put you in grave danger. Um, there are countries on, on the African continent that where, where um, you know, people believe that like um, people with albinism's body parts are, uh, uh, have power and so they will, you know, chop them off. They'll sometimes kill the person, sometimes not, but they will take the body part to use in different, you know, rituals and ceremonies. And so um, 
my relationship with magic is complicated and 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 um I chose the title because you know I don't think these women really belong to anybody they are black women um but I think that their stories belong to them and and particularly writing about people with albinism when so much of literature marginalizes us and excludes us it's like here's some magic that you know here, here's some magic that belongs to these women you know like that that nobody gets to co-opt or own or sort of use for their own purposes um so th there's so many reasons why the title is what it is <laughs> um we could talk all day about that but but yeah i think those are sort of the major those are those were the major sticking points for me when we were choosing the title because i had to rename it it was originally called dream girls and um we thought a better name we thought it something a bit more specific might be really good and so yeah yeah but it i came love out of that project. So I love that explanation. And also specifically with Suzette, you really wrote to her um, growing up, her sort of coming of age and realizing this idea that other people had about what her magic might be, right? So people who were, um, you know, you, there's this sort of scary moment where some people think that they can take her eyes, right? And you really tie this magic and albinism to sight. Can you talk about those connections and how they all come together? Definitely. So um, many people with albinism, I can't speak for all of them, usually also have um, ocular albinism, which sort of changes. Um, what I've read, it's, it, it's interesting. So your fovea is not always fully developed at birth. Um, and then also sometimes the nerves in your eyes are routed in a different way. So like sometimes my friend can point to me can point out a bird and say, hey, look, there's the bird. And it takes me a few seconds to actually like discern the bird. And some of that is about visual acuity, but some of that may also be about then how the nerves in my eyes speak to my brain. Um, and so sometimes people with albinism will, um, they might be legally blind, they might have partial vision, they might, um, like me, like my vision is not 20-20, but it is well enough for me to drive, um, you know, like with, with, with you know, with, uh, contact corrective, you know, corrective lenses, all of that, all of those things. So um, I think that that's, that that is, that was an important conversation for me to include in the book. I can't like, I, you know, I am not a legally blind person, so I couldn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily feel comfortable telling a story about a person with albinism who had those particular challenges, but I could talk about issues with sight. And so um, I think that's why it's it's kind of woven into all of the stories. I think there, there's also a moment in Maple's story where she kind of um, capitalizes on on the presumption that she can't see to get something that she, she yes. wants to see. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, but I have to say there's like, you know, there's the real world connection, um, but then there's also the thematic, like write a, you know, paper, go home, write a 10 page paper on the theme of sight in this book yeah. and in each of these stories too. I mean, it just, you folded that in beautifully to what, what we see in the world. Um, so were you, you know, were you also thinking about that as the theme? I'm assuming I'm not just putting that out there, right? I mean, that was in your head. You know, you know, I think, and, and you probably know this as well, you know, sometimes you start a story and you just have the story <laughs> and right. And like, as you have it, and as you draft and develop these other themes come into play and you, you start to notice things. I yeah. always, I believe that my work is way smarter than I am. Um, you know, so so like it teaches me things like as I am, you know, as I am working with it, it's teaching me what it's going to be. And and I'm, you know, I'm also doing my shaping and digging into my toolbox and stuff. So um, I didn't necessarily, I don't know that um, 
because Agnes's story is first, and I think that's sort of where you get the least of that conversation in terms of sight, I wasn't uh -huh. thinking about physical sight in, in her narrative, but I was thinking about insight, which Agnes just doesn't have. She's working on it, right? It, like she's, she's yes. part of her story is about her gaining insight. Um, and so that was very clear to me that I, I did want to write about that. And I think when I got to Suzette um, and I needed to sort of like, um, in some ways make a case for her like cloistering, you know, like for her being sort of kept away from people. Um, the issue, the issue with eyes and, 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 and her sight um, was not only useful, but I think it, it really sort of spoke to her like subjectivity, you know, um, yes. and also, yeah, 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 yeah. And there, you know, and there are also stories I heard as a kid about people. Um, there was like a big crime when I was, when I was younger about um, women who had some gouged out the eyes of another woman in a city close by. And so like that oh, also right. had some, re mm -hmm, that also had some resonance in terms of like how I wanted to shape that yeah. particular moment in her narrative. It felt really important to, it felt important to include the conversation about physical vulnerability as a person with albinism and also tie it to some larger cultural um, practices. Uh, yeah. So I um, I like that you said your stories are smarter than you sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Rings the true. Rings true. Yeah. Like, yeah, yes, I did smart. mean that. Well, so it really spoke yeah. to me. Um, so I can't remember which story this was in. Well, first of all, in every story, there's makeup. And I think every one of your characters goes to Ulta, right? Or talks about it. Um, <laughs> and there was this phrase that I wrote down and I didn't write what page it was on, but you wrote, um, uh, your character put on a palatable public persona. And I know this was yes. because um, she was, you know, dealing with her albinism and she wanted to paint on her eyebrows and stuff. But um, mm -hmm. for me as a woman, it spoke to me, a woman, um, you know, that is not dealing with albinism, that's not born albino, um, like the idea of putting on my palatable public persona mm -hmm. too, right? I mean, I put on lipstick to get on the, you know, to get on today. I think that's I did too. Yeah, it speaks to a lot of people. So there's this power of makeup that you recognize in there. Can you talk mm -hmm. about it? Yeah, definitely. You know, like, um, uh, you know, I also like my brows are not this color. They are very light. I didn't put on mascara today. So you can see my little blonde lashes. And like, that's the color of my, that was the color of my body hair. <laughs> um, um, and so, you know, I, I, I am often thinking about makeup, but also just about beauty, you know, like it um, only very recently have I started to see representations of people with albinism in spaces where there are also representations of beauty, right? So they're like models now, and like you, you'll see them in like music videos, um, and it's so wonderful. But I think that you know I struggle and still do sometimes with my own sort of like the the, the the different ways that I can express my beauty, whether I'm wearing makeup or not wearing makeup, or wearing mascara or not wearing mascara. I think because my differences on my skin, I've had a long history of the gaze. Um, of, and gazes of all kinds, right? And so I think that it is hard to live in a body where that is always happening and, and like not be thinking about that or like not be thinking about beauty or, or anything like that. I also want to say really quickly that people, a, a, lot, a lot of people have described this book as like, a, as like romance um, and, I, and there's certainly romance in it, but I think the reason that I wanted romance to be there is because I wanted in each of the, in each of the narratives for there to be someone who desired the, the main character, right? And who sort of um, 
was able to perceive her beauty in addition to her albinism, not like in spite of or like not past or anything. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in erasing one part of your identity in order to sort of be seen. Um, but they were seeing that and. And so, um, and I think that also- by the of, way, that you believe you don't want to erase them, right? Because it is who you are. Mm -hmm. just, you can't erase exactly. some part. You can't look past it. That's the person. It's, it's yeah. Looking past it is, is, is looking past a part of me, a really important yeah. part, not the totality, but a very important part. Yeah. Yeah. I love so. that. That's great. Okay, so I'm glad you brought up romance because I was going to ask you, the next question is about, there's a lot about the relationship between, um, we'll say, uh, you know, falling in love, but also um, men and women um, in this last one, like what is the role of a man in a woman's life, right? Is it the gaze, right? There are men, women. Oh, I see you're making this face. Get ready, <laughs> here it comes. <laughs> so in the last story, um, uh, Agnes writes, no one's, or you write, she says, no one suspected she made so little money that living with a man was more of a financial than a romantic decision. And I just thought, you know, more people should be talking about that, writing about that. I think that this is not uncommon for one person to live with another because they just can't afford something else. And mm -hmm. I think you captured that, that relationship and that you know, how much you can hate that sort of the interior monologue that goes along with that really well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had an old, old friend who used to say this phrase um, when he would see two people together and he didn't think it was a love match. He would be like, yeah, that's for the sake of stability. <laughs> And like, right. and like my friend and I like co-opted that phrase. And so whenever like we would, whenever we saw it happening, we'd be like, yep, sake of stability. Um, and that's a real thing. You know, I think, yeah, I think that it is something that um, we should talk about, honestly, when we talk about relationships and, and, you know, it's not always romance and, 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 you know, in that particular case, that's actually from Agnes's story. Um, in that particular case, you know, the, the the lack of romance is mutual. Like, you know, I think right. the person that she's living with is also, she also serves a purpose for him. Um, and sometimes that's just how it is. I mean, you know, my hope for Agnes, because I am a hopeless romantic, my hope is that she, is that, you know, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but whatever happens after the end of her story, romance is also present. Um, but yeah, but that's just kind of how things are. And it's sort of a, a part of, of the kind of disaster that is her life. <laughs> it's that she's found herself in that particular situation, which in itself isn't bad, but the way that she's being treated in addition to that, right, is is mm -hmm. the issue. But and 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 just kind of the tacit understanding that she she can be treated that way because she ha because she has fewer options, or at least she yeah. believes she does. But in all three of these stories, right, you don't fall into this uh, this trap I hate of the like happily ever after, we're all in this for love. It's like, okay, because at the end of the day, you have to pay for your rent and you have to pay for food, right? You've got to pay for the internet connection, making this interview possible, like, <laughs> right? I mean, this is real life. And I feel like you really got that in there, that money does matter in your decisions. It's not just yes. love. And I just, I really appreciated that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, so I want to go to another one of my favorite passages. Um, it's uh, on page 114 for anyone who's listening. I'll read it. So I'm such a Northeastern white middle-aged woman. So you're going to have to excuse my, my, my reading. But I just, I thought this was so good. Um, you wrote, listen, if you're really trying to grow up, if you're really trying to be a functioning adult, 
you got to understand that don't nobody do nothing for free. Everybody wants something and you got to figure out what you want to give them. You can't be bopping around the world thinking everybody operate out of the kindness of their hearts. Ain't nobody like that. Nobody. And it ain't bad to want nothing neither. It's not what you want. That's the bad thing anyway. It's what you willing to do to get it. For me, that was the most powerful passage in this entire book, I have to say. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah, because- it's Drina, that's Drina and Suzette, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. It is. It is. It's yeah. Drina, another love story. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I just, I wanted to ask you, I mean, this idea that you you know, there's nothing for free and what are you willing to give up to get what you want? That is a theme in all three of these books. Please yeah. tell me how how you thought about this as you were writing or afterwards. You know, again, I think it's one of those things that just sort of comes out of my own history, you know, like they, you know, my mom was very um, realistic about that. She um, and I appreciate it. She she used to tell us often the world owes you nothing <laughs> like it owes you nothing and it's probably not going to give you anything for mm -hmm. everything you get. You are going to have to figure out how to get it. Right. Yeah. Um, but she, you know, but there was also like an eth there were ethics to that. You know, there were just certain things you didn't do and there were certain people you didn't do them to. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And and there were ways that you moved through the world with integrity. And, 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 and you know, and, and I think that that's a that integrity is something that is relative to who you are and what your particular beliefs are. And you have to and, but you need to be clear about what yours is and, and you know, what you will do, what you won't do. Um, yeah. And so I think that that, yeah, I just think that that just became an important part of their narratives because it's an important part of mine, like as a black woman, you know, it was, and it was clear to me that when she told me that she was telling me that because I was a black woman, right? So that I didn't go into the world believing that um, it loved me as much as she did, to be honest with you. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, that's hard truth. And yet I feel like it's a truth and it's, there's beauty in that too, because it, it makes you, it's like, I know you are strong enough to make those decisions, right? And uh -huh. I know you are strong enough to go into this world and decide who you want to be, yeah. you know? And it's really a coming of age moment um, for anyone who has that. And in the book, right? It's this this uh -huh. idea, but also to look at other people around you, because I think your characters were also saying, well, what did my mother give up, right? Or yeah. my father, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And negotiating that for themselves. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> and do I respect I feel like that happens in every, in every story. Yeah. But then I also think your characters were asking themselves, do I respect the decisions my parents yeah. made around this? So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can you yeah. talk a little bit about the parental, I guess, relations <laughs> to your characters and that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. In, in every genre in which I have written, I have written something about relationships between between mothers and daughters like i wrote my dissertation on on representations of, of black motherhood and in, in afro diasporic women's literature like um I love that. And, yeah and without the slightest clue that i would be writing about it in this particular form you know like i i came to writing novels um fairly recently in terms of the amount of time i've been a writer so um, I think that just my deep interest in it in all of those different iterations, you know, looking at it in in the tradition of literature into which I'm writing, I think just kind of made it 
I was destined to write about that in that way. But um, one interesting little nugget is uh, of of um, little, little fun fact about Maple Story is that I started Maple Story with the intention of writing about a healthy mother daughter relationship. Because I was like, I'm always writing about like the really complicated and 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 you know kind of you know unhealthy ones. I'm gonna write about the mother and daughter who like love each other, uh-huh. and. I wrote the first scene when they were there, they're binge watching Atlanta and um, got up to make dinner. And I was like in the kitchen cooking and I heard a very small voice say, the mother's supposed to be dead. And I was like, what? Like, no, <laughs> what about my healthy relationship? And in that way, right? Like that was one of the lessons about um, the, 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 the book being smarter than I was because I told myself I write about it for one day my next writing session, I'll write as if the mother's dead. And if it doesn't work, I'm going back to my original plan. Um, and, and it worked and it worked and it, and it, it the story just unfolded from there, you know, uh-huh. and, and yeah, people's reactions to Maple's story, um, that, you know, like, like, like I, I can't stop thinking about her. I'm like, that was a good decision because yeah. I don't think that she would have, I don't think her narrative would have been as powerful if I hadn't listened. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Yeah. But I keep thinking I'm like healthy mother daughter relationships. Do I know any? Okay. <laughs> Are they out there? I mean, it's almost part of growing up, right? Yeah, yeah. Away. It's hard being a parent. Like that shit yeah. looks hard. Like <laughs> I mean, like I, yeah. I'm like you. You. It's just complicated by nature. You have to yes. prepare another human being for life. That yes. that sounds overwhelming. Like just the thought of it makes me anxious. <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm like yeah. They're they're often complicated, but maybe that's just sort of yeah. That's just sort of part of human development. Like it's easier yeah. for other species, but for us, it's it's weird. I don't know, but you laid that the complications you laid them bare in the in these stories, right? And that that makes them real for all of us. So. I just thought that was fantastic. All right. So I want to switch over for the last few minutes and ask you a little bit about craft. Um, What is it like? I mean, you are an award-winning, right, lauded poet uh, who comes up with this amazing triptych, this short group of short stories here. What's it like to switch from poetry to longer form? You know, um, it doesn't feel that different for me. The one difference is, is that, but actually I believe this should also be true in prose is that every word in poetry counts, right? And a word can have like multiple layers of meaning um, that feels more intense with poetry, but I absolutely do that in prose. You know, like I know my book is long, but like every word in it was intentional. Um, and so I think actually they inform each other for me in really interesting and profound ways. And even, you know, literary criticism, which is what I was training to, to do in my PhD program, I think helped me really craft things like Agnes's story. Sort of that like austere language, you know, um, of the literary critic, you know, but also I think the skills there have also helped. I mean, just in like writing off the book essays. <laughs> like, like I feel like I feel like if I was not writing like thirty page papers at the age of thirty, I might have lost those skills. <laughs> and so, um, and so, you know, um, they really inform each other. I think in some really interesting ways. And for me, it's just a lot of trial and error. Like, I like my my MFA is in poetry, and I was trained as a poet. I didn't really take any other kinds of workshops or things like that. And I. I think switching over to prose at first was just a way to do something new 
but I also, you know, I, I sort of started to borrow skills from those different genres and also kind of learn, you know, you learn by reading good books, you learn by drafting and making mistakes and going back. And yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it, it feels just like a, just a, a, a another part of, of what I do and what I love to do. So yeah. writing is rewriting the drafting yeah. and redrafting. Uh, so tell me what was the hardest part about getting this book published? Mm. Oh, the 2021, <laughs> which was the book. I mean, I can, you know, I don't have a history in terms of like, particularly like selling prose projects. So um, I think in the grand scheme of things, it sold pretty fast. And, you know, I, I love my editor. We have the same editor. I think she's amazing. The team at Grand Central is amazing. But it felt like the year 2021, what like came at me like, I am going to make your life exponentially harder between now and the publication of this book. <laughs> like everything else that could go wrong that is not related to the book is going to go wrong. Oh, so for me, sorry. yeah, surviving the emotional the emotionally taxing onslaught of things that happened in 2021 was the hardest part of publishing this book. Writing it, I loved writing it. Um, revising it, you know, revising and editing, you know, it's tough, but you get into a groove and it, and it gets good and interesting and new things come up. And so it really yeah. was like a joy to write this book. I mean, writing is work. I don't ever want to, I feel like too many people sort of presume that it's not, <laughs> you know, you're just right. sort of sitting at your desk staring out the window. No, it is actual work. <laughs> Right. Um, but I've had a ton of jobs that I've really hated. And this one is the one I love the most. Yeah, oh, that's hard. amazing. Yeah, yeah, I have a terrible job. Yeah. Customer service, worked as a server. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Work yeah. That, that didn't leave me fulfilled in the way that writing does. And writing does that for me, even when it's hard, when it's scary, when I'm talking about things that... Um, I might not have, you know, I might not have gotten over and didn't realize that until I started writing about it. And I'm like, oh, crap. I am not, <laughs> I have not completely healed from the, you know, like, yeah. um, in spite of glad all that of happens that, to you, cause then I get to read it and it's so yeah, good. Yeah. In spite of all of that, I, 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 I deeply enjoy making beautiful things out of words um, or things that. that I hope are beautiful. So. All right. So in 30 seconds or less, what kind mm -hmm. of advice do you have for new writers or aspiring writers? Don't think about the book while you're writing, write what you want write what comes to you, trust your instincts um, and hone your instincts. Everything in workshop is not going to help you. That's okay, it's not supposed to. Um, learn how to, let your instincts teach you how to um, parse out what's useful and what's not useful. So, yeah. So good. Words of wisdom. Destiny, the book is amazing. Nobody's magic. Thank you so much for joining me. I love talking to you. I wish we had another hour. May you sell many, many copies. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> From your lips. <laughs> <laughs>